to open your Bible and make your way to the book of James. It's pretty far into the New Testament. If you make your way to the book of Hebrews, I think you just want to go, what, one more book and you'll make your way to James chapter 1. We are going to talk this morning about trials and, and difficulties and sorrows. I think you know that whenever the talk comes to trials and difficulties that it's pretty common for pessimism to rear its head. For example, you know the saying that that light at the end of the tunnel, it's not really the end of the trial, it's just the locomotive, it's on its way. Charlie Brown, great theologian, said, it always looks darkest just before it gets totally dark. One lady put it lightheartedly. She said, as long as you laugh at your troubles, you may be sure that you will never run out of something to laugh at. Trials, which are clearly could be defined as our difficulties, our sorrows, our stresses, those things that maybe keep you up at night, those areas of life that are painful, maybe even exquisitely painful, Uh, that some of them last a relatively short time. Some of them go on and on and on, and they last a very long time. But every trial that you have has this unifying factor. It's a threat to your trust in God. And having been introduced by the sovereign God... He has purposefully brought something into your life in order to threaten your trust in Him. So He's fabulously wise and omnipotent and can do all that's according to His own thought and pleasure. And so here He is working in your life to actually bring a threat to your trust in Him. And that's important to Him in order that you would grow through it. So let's read the first four verses. We'll spend our time together there. James chapter 1. James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes who are dispersed abroad, greetings. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And so you see, we're not really called to laugh at trials and our sorrows, but here we are called to have joy in our trials. We would weep with those who weep. We would sorrow with those who sorrow. But because we trust God by faith, we can have inner joy in the worst of sorrows. Our Lord Jesus had joy in sorrows. He cried when Lazarus died. He cried in the garden of Gethsemane, sweated great drops of blood, a process called hematrodosis, very rare, in which the capillaries actually burst under the stress and the blood oozes out through 
areas of the body, particularly the forehead, the temples, and he experienced that. He was doing that because he was going through a trial of, in his humanity, trusting God for what was about to come to him in the cross. Scripture says, though, in the book of Hebrews, that he, he went to the cross for the joy set before him, despising the shame, looking down the nose at the shame that he was going through. And he never lived disobediently. He never lived in such a way as to invite trials and difficulties and consequences into our life, into his life. But we do. We can live pretty disobediently and thereby invite trials and difficulties and consequences into our lives. But when trials do come into our life, our great need is to believe that they come by a good and loving God. It's a great need right there, that they come by a good and loving God. God is good, but our author, James, had to learn that. Before he became a man of great wisdom, he was a great fool. A couple instances in Scripture. Let me just kind of orient you to them a little bit here. Back in Matthew chapter 13, Mary and the sons of her husband Joseph tried to get Jesus out of somebody's home because he was teaching. And they actually thought that he was a dangerous guy. Now, James, the man who wrote this letter, was Jesus' next younger brother. Jesus was born before Joseph and Mary came together. But then the next child to be born, we assume unless there were daughters, the next child to be born was James, this guy right here who's writing this letter. So understand now, James is a grown guy. His his brother Jesus is somewhere between 30, 33 years old. So he's not much younger than that, maybe 29. And he's trying to get Jesus out of the house because he doesn't believe in Jesus. Maybe you even know about the story in John chapter 7, no? where it actually explains that his brothers didn't believe in him, and they actually thought that he was twisted because he was kind of holding back from going to Jerusalem. And they were like, hey, look, dude, if you want to make yourself such a big deal, you got to go to Jerusalem because that's where big deals happen. So how come you're not going? And Jesus said, hey, look, you guys, you're of the world. You always have your opportune time. But for me, I have to walk in the light as long as the light is in the world. So what you're seeing then And James is the oldest brother, and especially important in a patriarchal culture where oldest sons earn the honor preeminent from the father, is that this guy is really a fool of a man. And he's Jesus' next younger brother. You've heard all the jokes maybe all through your life. Oh, how terrible it would have to be to be Jesus' sibling. Because every time you do something wrong, it only looks all the worse because Jesus was so pure and perfect. I don't think that's really the case. I don't think life would really work that way. But I can be assured that James was treated very well by his older brother Jesus. And that they would have had a a relationship that would have engendered and, and should have engendered trust in this guy James. But he's of a heart, he's of a nature of despising, of criticizing his older brother Jesus who is now in public ministry doing amazing things, miracles, teachings that have come down directly from heaven, and he's despising him. Until the day changed his life. 
A day or two after Jesus rose from the dead. We really don't know exactly when. According to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 7, Jesus appeared to James after the resurrection. One-on-one encounter. This is so unusual because at this time, James is an unbeliever. And Jesus appears to James. And may I just say at that moment, James is thoroughly converted and has this one-on-one encounter, discussion with his older brother, now risen from the dead. And at that point, James' life turns from being a fool to being on the progression of being a Christian and growing into a wise man. I think, you, I think in order for you to kind of capture this and to enjoy the message a little bit this morning, put yourself for a moment, as best as you can, because I have a hard time doing it, in the place of meeting with your older brother who has claimed to be the Messiah, has performed all the signs, you've dissed him, you've criticized him, you've upheld your family's honor by not going along with this older brother of yours who is a shameful figure in Israel, and now you are encountering him face to face after he's risen from the dead, and he's telling you that everything that the Scriptures said about him are absolutely true. I don't know what the right words are to describe that kind of meeting. I really don't. It's such a unique thing. Every other time, it seems like Jesus basically appeared. He appeared to groups of people, but not with his brother. He had a specific, unique relationship with him. And there was something that he had for his youngest brother, younger brother, next younger brother, in terms of a ministry for the rest of his days that necessitated a one-on-one meeting with the resurrected, glorified Son of God, God in the flesh, now revealed in glory. Something nobody else quite had individually, apparently. So I don't know what the right words are to describe that, but I can only tell you that it absolutely changed James and put him on a path by which, in verse 1, he describes himself this way, a bond servant of God and of Jesus Christ. Well, actually, the word is slave, doulos. He calls his older brother in verse 1, look there, Lord. Anybody here call their older brother Lord? Yeah, right. He calls his older brother Lord, and he calls himself a slave to him. That's probably indicative of the result of the meeting that he had with his older brother that day after seeing him rise from the dead He recognized who his older brother was and that instantly transported him to the place of recognizing then who he actually was. I'm a slave. I'm your slave to his older brother. And so this really requires us then to realize that the guy who's writing this to us this morning has gone through tremendous life transformation, tremendous experiences, When he talks to us about trials, he's not coming to us as another voice on trials. For many years, James became the lead pastor in the city of Jerusalem. He would have had many, many elders with him. But James was the man who was the lead pastor. In Acts chapter 15, he guides the early Christian churches out of a great theological problem. Even the apostles listened to James in Acts chapter 15. In Acts chapter 21, Paul travels to Jerusalem and it's a very difficult situation. Riots going on. 
Who does Paul gather with? James and the elders, and he gets counsel specifically from James. James is recognized as a man in only maybe 15, 20 years' time as a man of preeminent wisdom. And this is who James becomes. He becomes this man of great wisdom. And that's why a lot of times people will talk about the letter of James as a piece of wisdom literature. It's written in that kind of a style. But I want you to understand, if you would look at verse 1 with me again, he writes this letter to the 12 tribes who are dispersed abroad. So, if you would, hold your finger here, but I want you to flip back to the book of Acts chapter 8. Book of Acts chapter 8. Flip there with me, because when he writes to the 12 tribes scattered abroad, he writes to people who have gone through an element of suffering. Let's pick up the story in verse 1 of Acts 8. Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him to death. That would be Stephen, the first martyr. And on that day, a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. Remember what James was? He was the lead pastor of the church in Jerusalem. Picking it back up again, the same verse... Notice, by the way, at the end of verse 1, the apostles did not remove themselves, but the other folks were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Verse 2, picking it up, some devout men buried Stephen, made loud lamentation over him, but Saul began ravaging the church, entering house after house, dragging off men and women, and he would put them in prison. These are the folks James is writing to. These people, Jews from all the different tribes of Israel who were a part of the church in Jerusalem. And when this sweeping, vicious persecution began and Saul began ravaging the church in Jerusalem by entering house after house where they held their fellowships, they met as one in the temple, but they held their house fellowships house to house, he would enter your house and he would drag off your dad and your mom and grandma and he would drag them and put them in prison where you already knew what happened to Stephen so you knew what he was after and here's James lead pastor now if you would just go back to James 1.1 now we understand that he is writing to people who have gone through amazing trials he would have known thousands upon thousands of people by name who had gone through amazing sufferings. And he's writing to them here. Every kind of sufferings, health sufferings, money, lack of money, personal conflicts with others, housing problems, children problems, aging parent problems. And one that kind of sweeps them all is persecution on top of it all. So he is writing to folks who are going through and are enduring all kinds of trials. And these kind of trials include the trials you go through and I go through with the same pains and the same inner fears, sometimes gripping your soul 
the same tears, the same lack of sleep at night, the same trials that you have with God, the same temptations to sin. All these people had, and James is writing to them. And there are really just three headers that I want to take you through this morning. Three headers that just kind of take this wonderful passage that's all linked together in the original and strung together like a string of pearls. I'm just going to break it apart a little bit so that we can relate to it personally. And the first header is this, beloved. Your trials are personal. Your trials are personal. By that, I mean that they are fitted to you. Join me in verse 2. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials and stop. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. First word is consider. Stop right there. And we'll be done by three this afternoon. Now, stop right there. Consider. That is an imperative command. Now, what you have here is James writing to people he loves and knows who are going through massive trials. Their entire lives have been up, heaved up in the air, every kind of problem you can imagine. And the first thing he tells them is he gives them a command to consider it all joy. So let me, let me, let me make sure that you don't miss the context here because there's so many people in this world who want to tell you how to live through trials. And there's so many voices, whether it's Joel Osteen, or whether it's Oprah, or whether it's, it's well-meaning pastors, or whether it's on the back of a cereal box, or whether it's coming in a TED Talk, not this TED. There's so many people, I don't want you to listen to James this morning as though he's just another guy giving you advice on trials. So let me set it up for you this way. Let me, let me hit you with it this way. Please listen. He is not giving you an option here. He is giving you a command from the Almighty God who created the universe. He's giving us such language as to clear out all the confusion in our hearts about what to do in a trial. It is this, consider it all joy. Regard your trial as all joy. This, therefore, blows away every other voice. This blows away what's written on your coffee cup. This has more force than your astrological message of the day or the text message that you get or anybody else's voice in this world. This and this alone is how to regard the great pains and sorrows and difficulties of life, even if you had been persecuted, knocked out of where you live, removed from your loved ones, and scattered to the hinterlands. This word, beloved, and this word clearly, preeminently up front, challenges the suffering and sorrowing in our hearts by commanding us to consider it all joy. It's amazing. But it's just what we actually need. It really is. It's exactly what we need. We need something so clear, so compelling, so shocking, because at first you're thinking, oh, this guy's got to be some hard-hearted dude. 
to tell me when I'm in the midst of going through awful trials that I'm supposed to consider it all joy and he's commanding me to do so? I mean, what do we do with people who come up to us when we're going through sorrowing and say, hey, suck it up. Oh, my, the burning in our hearts against that person for their insensitivity is pretty strong, is it not? And rightly so. But this is James. He does say in verse 2, my brethren. He's not saying my subjects or my disgusting Christian brethren. My brethren, whom I love, whom I care for, whom I suffer with. Yeah, it's a pastor writing this. So let's flesh it out a little bit and see if we can't understand why he tells us to consider it all joy. Do you see the word encounter there in verse 2? You know, if you have a King James Version this morning, not only, of course, are you more holy than the rest of us, but you also have the word fall into, and that's a really good translation because actually that's the word. It's to fall into and be surrounded by your trial. The picture behind that is that you aren't in the trial because you're such a wretched person and you weren't good enough, you weren't smart enough, you didn't pray enough, you didn't give enough, you weren't holy enough, and so God, because he's so vindictive and mean, caused you to go into a trial. No, it's just different than that. It's you fell into it. You were walking through life. You were doing what you do, and the trial found you. It came upon you. And I'm not saying that at times we're not foolish and at times we're disobedient, and we don't have consequences that come. We do, surely. But this is telling you here that when you fall into a trial and you're surrounded by the mess of it, the morass of it, the confusion of it, the various aspects of it, all of which you, you can't even like comprehend one aspect and you've got eight or nine of them all swirling around. You're just in the midst of a trial that has so many different aspects to it. I think that helps us because what James does, now remember he's writing to people who have been in church a long time. This is kind of the passive way to talk about God because truth is, you don't really fall into trials. God brings them into your life. God is sovereign. God rules over all things. All that comes to pass is done by the hand of God. We all know that. God controls all things. In fact, this word here, encounter or falling into, is used in Acts chapter 27 of a ship that's in danger of sinking and all 270 plus people on board drowning runs into a sandbar or it falls into a sandbar and as a result everybody on board is saved that's the idea so by striking the ground everybody on board is saved the boat even though it breaks up everybody gets saved and so the the picture here is of a good outcome you fall into it but what seems really disastrous is actually a good outcome so here in in james Verse 2, we are the passive ones. We are the ones walking along in life when, bam, we, we fall into a trial. It happens to us, and you don't know why. But what you do know is that it's personal. It's very personal. It's designed just for you. In fact, the word there, various, I don't know if you have a different translation, uh, maybe something a little better, because the word various makes it sound, oh, yeah, yeah, well, actually, the word is one of these 
cool old words. It has to do with multivariegated, multicolored, multi-textured. It comes from the arts and crafts world. Um, you ever have anybody, you ever look at the back of a tapestry and you look at all the threads and it looks really bizarre and you never can see anything beautiful out of it, but you flip around the tapestry and there on the front is a gorgeous picture of something? That's actually what this is kind of talking about here. You know, when you're in the midst of the trial, it's just all those threads and everything looks discombobulated and it's very difficult. But the point is that there's all these different aspects to the trial that you're in. And it's so multivariated, it's so multi-sided. It's like this, this something that's got so many facets to it that you can't even all look at it in one look. There's just so many different things going on. That's the idea. And God has personally designed all the facets, all the angles, all the pressures, all the pains, all the sorrows, all the relationships, exactly for you. Just for you. So it's personal. It's a personally discerned trial. In other words, beloved, you could not have avoided the trial that you're in. You couldn't have avoided it. It's not like you saw it coming. Psalm 11 talks about how the wicked shoot at the upright in darkness. There's nothing you can do. It's in darkness. You're not supposed to see it. So you have this trial. It sought you out. It comes from God. And that's why the godly Puritan Stephen Charnock said, to endure a trial simply because we cannot avoid it or resist it is not Christian patience or Christian endurance. But to humbly submit because it is the will of God to inflict the trial, to be silent because the sovereignty of God orders it, is true godly endurance, true godly patience. Okay, we're still in verse 2, and now we want to look at that phrase, all joy, which is what we are to consider it if we are to get a handle on our trial. We have to understand all joy. Now, the words are specifically set up so that it's not just all joy, but the idea is that the joy of the, the, the... Trial is pure joy, uh, thorough joy, complete joy. In other words, we're not to look at the pieces of the trial that, that we're in and to pick out the pieces that we can have joy in and then despise the parts of the trial that we can't stand. It is actually that we are to consider every single aspect of the trial as nothing other than pure joy. That's what James is telling his people that's what James is telling us. In fact, if you have the NIV, you have the words pure joy. The idea is there's nothing but joy. So your trial is so unique to you, you fell into it, you didn't even necessarily bring it on yourself. It has come to you. It has many aspects that are unique just to you. It's your personal trial. It was designed for you. It came to you from God. And you are to look at it and you are to thoroughly in every aspect of it to say this is pure joy. In fact, for me to think otherwise is to disobey Almighty God, who demands of me that I consider it imperatively pure joy, all joy. Wow. So this is what we need to know, guys. Is God good? So look at verse 5. But if any of you lacks wisdom, meaning this, I don't understand the trial, Lord. I don't understand what's going on. That's what he's saying. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all 
generously and without reproach. That they're talking about, he gives you wisdom in the trial, generously and without reproach, and it will be given him. But he must ask in faith without any doubting. For the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. The idea being that if you're really doubting that God is good in your trial, He's going to let you stew in it for a while longer until your faith comes to the place where it says, you know, God is good. Now, I can tell you that my wife and I are going through a trial right now. It's been a long-standing trial. It's a difficult trial. Many times I'm super, super discouraged. But every day I get to look at creation. There I see the trees and I see animals and I see a sky and I see grass and I see things, and I look up things on the internet, mountain vistas, you ever do that, and put beautiful pictures up on your, as your screensaver, your background, and things that are just awesome to look at. And it tells me every day, God is good. God is amazingly good. I see it through creation. Even though our circumstances are worthy of weeping and sorrow, yet there is a good God behind it all. Maybe this will help you with Verse 5, I'll try to give this to you in a way that makes sense. I don't know if they still do this anymore, but it used to be that there was a cough medicine where their advertising slogan was, it's the, I'm going to mess it up, but you'll get it, and maybe you can remind me which one it is. Is it Vicks? Where it's the, the help you get to sleep, um, get some rest, feel better medicine. Something like that. Remember that? I got one shake of the head. Thank you, sir. I will talk to you afterward. So they, they would, what they would do is they would say, okay, instead of just saying it's medicine that makes you feel better, they would give you, it's the make you feel better, help you get to sleep, and wake you in the morning with a happy heart, medicine. And so they would string together this word, and it stuck in your mind. Actually, that's exactly what it goes going on here in verse 5, except for English translations, we can't bring it out. But it's really what, he's, what, what James does. He says, oh, he's not just God. He's the good and gracious, all-giving God. He could have said he's God is good and he's all-giving, but he, he's the good and gracious, all-giving God. It's the way it actually goes in the original, which is like, of course he is. Of course he is. So lovely and encouragement, sweet to consider, that what we need to know in order to consider it all joy is that the God who is around the trial that you have fallen into and surrounds you is from a good and generous and all-giving God. Now we can consider it all joy. You can be sure that God knows exactly what he's after in your trial. Knowing that God brings the trial that you fell into means that even though you soak your pillow with tears at night, yet you somehow mysteriously still wake up in the morning with your heart somewhat refreshed, able to get up, able to go out what you, to do what you need to do. As Christians, our trials are all the bitterness of hell that we shall ever know. And this is the worst it gets for us. More than that, our entire Christian faith is made to endure trials and sufferings and abandonments and pain and loss. Our Christian faith provides us with comfort in bereavement, strength 
in poverty, abandonment by friends, betrayals, cancer, heart attacks. Our faith even sanctifies the black queen of all sorrows, death. Where is your sting? There is nothing in this world, nothing that can happen to you that your Christian faith can't thoroughly protect you from so that you wear Superman's cape every day, all day. There is no bullet that can penetrate you in God's world. Therefore, consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. I mean, you're preserved for as long as you need to be preserved. All the things that God is doing in your life are good and to strengthen you and to cause you to grow and mature in your Christian faith and see the strength, the power of your faith in Christ. You see how full and worthy of your trust your wonderful Lord is. He's good. See, you're, you have a, a living trust in God as a Christian. So picture this. Put it on a scale. Your living trust. You could be either at 0% trust in God or 100% trust in God with the circumstances of your life. If you were 0%, that means you're an unbeliever and you have no actual trust in God. And in fact, God uses trials to bring people to saving faith, to trust in the Lord, because they see they don't have any real faith in the Lord when the trial comes. Some people discover that through trials. And for that person, a, a trial is a real gift. Very kind of God to send that trial to them. But for those of us who are believers, the testing of your faith is also a gift It just shows you where you are, if you can picture a scale in your mind, that you're somewhere between 1% trust in God, trusting in God, how are you doing, and 99% trusting in God. You're somewhere somewhere in there on that scale, between 1% and 99%. 100% perfect faith is what Jesus Christ had. And he had trials that were so massive, so monumental, that, that... they were necessary for him because he had to be our sacrifice. He had to be our, our intermediary before God. His perfect faith had to atone for all of our lack of faith through our life. So he was perfect 100%. And because of his trials, he was 100% confirmed in holiness. Therefore, when he offered himself on the cross, he offered himself as a, as a holy sacrifice without any blemish of a lack of trusting God. It, it was necessary for him. In fact, Hebrews says, In the days of his flesh he offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to the one able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his piety. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. And having been made perfect, he became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation. So listen, the idea is this. The stronger your faith... The more like Christ your faith, the greater your trials will be. Not as Job's comforters thought, which is if God is giving someone great trials, it's because he's displeased with them. And so he's reaching out his hands and he's squeezing them in order to eke that sin that they're unwilling to let go of. Job's 
comforters theology of those who go through great trials. Always trying to figure out what the problem is. One theologian named Bates wrote this. I think it's awful. See what you think. He said this, Nothing kindles God's anger more than neglecting his direct agency in sending the trial. It's a symptom of a wretched state of soul. Hmm. Nothing kindles God's anger more than neglecting his direct agency in sending the trial. I mean, truth be told, all of us are trying to run from every trial we can as fast as we can to minimize it, right? I think that comes from the Norman Bates School of Theology. That is just weird. It's like, well, you're going through a trial, but the reason you're not out of it is because you're not holy enough. You know, it's like, ah, I'm, you know, you're already being crushed by a trial. Somebody comes along and says that. It's like, thanks, just back up the steamroller and do it again. Better is the thought of the Apostle Peter. He writes in his first epistle, fourth chapter, listen to this, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you which comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening to you. Wow, that's encouraging. We're all actually going through it together. We're all in the trials. Your trial is very different than mine, but boy, I can sure compassionately weep with you and sympathize with you not because I have to go through the same trial, but because I understand what it feels like and I understand the sorrows and I understand the fears and the pains. So be assured of this, okay, my beloved friends? Your trials are personal. They are hand-designed by the ultimate hand of love just for you, just for you. We're called to trust God with them. So that's my first header, okay? Your trials are personal. Secondly, not only are they fitted for you, but your trials are a work in process. Like I said, we all want our trials to be over with as quickly as they can be. We want them over immediately. I had that happen once. I remember we had a, a neighbor downstairs right underneath where we lived with our four little kids. Maybe we only had three at that point. And this guy would play his music all night long. He was right underneath us. And I couldn't get the landlord to get this guy to turn off his music. Our kids couldn't sleep. I couldn't sleep. And the landlord was not willing to listen to me. Went to church that Sunday. This had been going on for several weeks. He had made threatening comments to my wife, like, uh, dude, I don't want to leave my wife in, in the home now or in the apartment. Really weird. Went to church. It was all in my mind. I hardly heard the sermon at all because I was just so emotional and had lost sleep and so upset about this trial. And the weirdest thing happened. I got home from church. And the guy was moving out because he had played his music so loud that he had kept the landlord's mother-in-law up last night. Yeah. <laughs> and he was out of there by like an hour later. That was like, I think, the only time in my life where like a trial just, whoop, it's gone. <laughs> it can happen, in other words. But it's not normal, right? Trials have a life cycle. They have a beginning and they have an end. Some of you maybe just today just need to hear that. Maybe that's what you're going to walk away with. Trials have an end. It's true, they do, under the hand of God. So therefore, consider it all joy, my beloved. But they're a work in process. We want them all over immediately. Join me in verse 3. He writes, Knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, the power to keep trusting in God. 
while counting it all joy. This is supernatural. This is not natural. It is totally, fundamentally against who we are to think that a trial, a suffering, is joyful. And that's where the beauty of this passage comes because you do not have the strength to consider your trial all joy. You have to go to God. You have to get God's perspective on it. And you have to exercise the faith that Christ put in you when he saved you, which you can do. It's like a muscle in there. Come on. You can exercise that faith when you trust it in Christ. And so now, as a believer in Jesus Christ, you can exercise that faith, and now you can experience the the joy of the Lord even through the greatest sorrows of life. It's an inner joy. It's not an out exterior, oh, ha, ha, and Baptist happy face on Sunday morning and Presbyterian frown the rest of the week. It's inner joy. It's deep down joy in Christ. He's doing what's right. He's doing what's good. Now, testing here is not like the tests that you took when you were in school. Some of you, that was a very long time ago, where you either passed or failed or where you got a grade. Not that kind of testing. This is the kind of testing where you take something and you you continually take the dross out of it and you keep on burning off the impurity until finally you just have pure gold. That's kind of a test. More like a product test where you continue to fix the product after it fails the test, and then you test it again, and then after it isn't fixed, well, then you test it again. until finally, the product is just right, ready for market. That kind of test, okay? That's the idea here. Not the pass-fail test, but the improvement test. You're the crucible. God holds the fire underneath, and His aim is to make you more pure. This is important because if you'll endure, at some point you have to see the trial for what it is. That's why James writes at the beginning of verse 3 the word knowing. You have to know something. You have to gain an intelligent understanding of what is happening. You learn about your faith in God. That is what you learn. You learn about where your faith in God is at. You learn about where it's weak. You learn about where it's strong. But you also learn about God. You learn about the character of God. You learn that God is after you to make your character like His. You learn that he is after you to make you like Jesus Christ. You learn that the love of God that led Jesus Christ to go to a cross is the very same love of God that has been electingly set upon you so that now you wonder, why am I in such difficulty? Well, it's because he's making you like Christ. Look at the difficulties he put his son through when his son was living here on earth. I tell you, we're just funny people. We just... You know, Jesus, Jesus has to go through all the horror, all the shame, all the pain, all the difficulty. And our life is supposed to be, you know, a Chevrolet and a Ford in the garage, four weeks of vacation. Kids are doing well. They're all, and we just have this whole thing of how life's supposed to go. And then when it doesn't go that way, and when we have health issues or when people let us down, We just tend to look at it and and go, God, what are you doing? And we have to be brought back to what we've been called to, to be Christians in this world. Knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. Endurance. 
Boy. And, and really, you know, we do get confused here. We do get confused here. We tend to think because the world tells us that trials come about to people in order to build character. We hear that all the time. Trials build character. Actually, a lot of people get trials and they just get bitter. They get ornery. They get selfish. They get divorced. They blow off their children. They blow off their job. They do all kinds of things. And they, anything happens but character. No, it's not true that trials build character. It's how you respond to the trial, is it not? Go back a page or two with me here. Turn back a page or two to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12. Look at verse 2. Here we are told to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith. Who for the, That's the race of faith, by the way. That's not talking about how we came to faith. That's talking about running the race of faith. Who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. And that's just, that's just awesome. That's just telling you that here's the guy who's the most holiest, the best, the best law keeper of God ever. And he's going through these massive trials, and he's perfect all through them. See, that the idea is that as you trust God, you're going to have harder and harder trials in your life. Some of you are like, why are my trials so hard? It's because you have really strong faith, beloved. God is bringing out of you something even better. You're like, man, but I'm so much better than everybody else. Why do I have to get trials? Then we look at Jesus, and it's like, man, instead of thinking he was going up, he was going down. He was on a downward trajectory through his human life. And we think, well, you know, I guess a disciple is not supposed to be above his teacher, but if his life continually was just a downward ascent to suffering, misunderstanding, betrayal, and death, that's certainly not to be of my life. I'm to be on an upward trajectory, and actually it's not the case. Not the case. We who are called by Christ to be His are on the similar downward descent. So trials are important, and the greater the faith we have, the more honor God receives, the more we become like Christ, and frankly, the more we understand and love the gospel. So, one man, you can go back to James. One man wrote this. He said, Endurance toward God is resigned and says, I will bear the indignation of the Lord. Toward Christian people who justly reprove us, endurance is meek and says, Let the righteous smite me. Toward the trials under which we are called to suffer, endurance is not uneasy and rebellious, but rather gives them a kind reception. Some people read this word endurance in verse 3 and think that it's talking about passivity, resignation. Guys, I'm talking to you here especially because we are known to be passive. Listen, that is not endurance. When you're passive and you're resigned, that's not endurance. That's just you choosing to live a comfortable life because you don't like pain. There's nothing Christ-like in that at all. That's not faith. That's just seeking my comfort and hoping that it will somehow turn out good. Endurance is remaining brave and strong and very frequently making choices that will actually cause the trial to go longer. 
because those are right choices. And so you're going to have more pain as a result of living righteously, gentlemen. Now listen, Satan wants to get in your heart and tell you that, you know, God's plan for your life, instead of the God has a wonderful plan for your life, God has a miserable plan for your life. He just wants you miserable all the time. So he's got trial after trial stored up from you. And Satan says, but if you'll follow me, I will give you joy. And so we punch out of this trial and we punch out of that trial. We step out of this hard situation and we lay back and wait for that other situation to pass over us, acceding to Satan, the territory that we ought to have given to Christ by courage and bravery and trusting in God by our faith instead of just being passive and allowing other things to go. So question for you. If you were given the choice of growing stronger in faith through trials or having no sorrows in life from now until the day you die, and the way you die is an asteroid comes out of the sky, you never see it, it hits you square on the noggin, and you never feel anything. So in other words, no more pain, no more sorrow, no more suffering for the rest of your life. Or you can be a Christian and have trials and sorrows and sufferings that may break you down to tears, agonies, and struggles for years, maybe decades. Which would you choose? Which would you choose? Well, that brings us to our last point, which is this. Your trials are perfect. The first point was your trials are personal. The second one is that they're a work in process. That's endurance. And the last one, your trials are perfect. Verse 4, and let endurance have its perfect results so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. God's perfect best for you in a cursed world is this, letting endurance have its perfect result so that you may be perfect and complete. These trials are forming in you perfection. So excellent. The idea of perfect refers to something that is fully formed all parts. You can almost think of like adulthood. You know, we, we talk about a, the young guys now. They get into their 20s. Physically, they're a man, but they're still living in mom's basement playing, you know, Minecraft and whatever else. And they're not fully formed. You know what I mean? Yeah. Woo. I got a better response out of that one than I did about the Vicks VapoRubber, whatever that was. Park it right there, preacher, right? Oh, you're been reading my emails. This is the idea of fully formed, fully mature. You know, that's the picture of the word perfect. And then you have the word complete, which adds to it the idea of having all kind of different parts, but without blemish. None of the parts have blemish. So imagine a full maturity. There's no parts that are lacking. So the promise here is that you will be fully developed in all your parts without blemish just like your beloved Savior, Jesus Christ, who, although he was a son, yet learned obedience through the things which he suffered. Did he not? I mean, that's amazing. So that at the end of your trial, as verse 4 says at the end, you are lacking in nothing. You lose all those immaturities. You lose that part of your temperament that's surly and snarly and snappy and unkind and just loves self. 
You lose all those deficiencies. You get fully formed so that as your trials are finished, you come out a more mature Christian, fully formed, fully complete, and your trial under the hand of an all-wise, compassionate God accomplishes all of its goals. And when you finish the trial, hey, you're like the woman who just gave birth. She forgets about the pain that she endured for joy of the child that she now holds. And that's the way it is at the end of the trial. God makes it so. He makes you genuinely joyful. He brought you through that trial because what you know now and what you are now is so substantially different and so substantially more mature and deep and rich. You're really actually grateful to God. And then you're saying, why did I ever distrust him? Why did I ever distrust him? So being complete, all of this is crafting you, crafting you, crafting you for eternity. One guy said, trouble is what gives a person their chance to discover their strength or lack of it. It's true. I mean, they do. They're like, they show us what we are and what we aren't. But God takes us further. And then he equips us, makes us change. That's why James says, let endurance have its perfect result. So I'll close it this way. And then we're about to have communion together as members of the body of Christ, together. We live together. We care for each other. We are one another, all of us who are believers. Wrapping it up here, what, what do we now say to God as a result of having evaluated our lives under the magnifying glass of James' pen? What do we say? Shall we say as As Job did, though he slay me, yet will I trust him? Can we genuinely say, Lord, the trial that you've brought into my life is so good, it's even exquisite, that though it it hurts, yet I bless you for it by faith. In other words, I don't need to feel happy before I have joy. I don't need to feel good about you until I can trust you. I know who you are in the gospel. I know who you are in the other written book of creation. I know who you are. I trust you. I bless you. And I will consider my trial pure joy, all the facets of it. The great 17th century poet John Donne wrote this, I shall rise from the dead. I shall see the Son of God, the Son of glory and shine myself as that sun shines. I shall be united in the ancient of days, to the ancient of days, to God himself who had no morning and never began. No man saw God and lived, and yet I shall not live till I see God, and when I have seen him, I shall never die. Our trials in light of eternity are so comforting. Shall we trust God for all that is in eternity, but not trust Him for the lesser that is here on earth? Of course we shall. Well, may God give you much grace to trust God in your trial. Let's pray. Gentlemen, oh, Father, we come to you not flippantly and not pseudo-emotionally, but bringing all of our heart to you, all all of our life, Uh, Trial, fear, every pain, even every bad response. Bring it now. And we ask you, Father, to forgive where we have fallen short. 
and where we have not trusted you. We know, we know you are a good God, that you are a gift-giving God. And so we will trust in you. We will consider our trials all joy by faith, by the power that you've put in us. We only ask that your mercies and tender kindnesses might fully surround us and those we love, that you might do your great and saving and sanctifying work of those we pray for. Not so much, Lord, that we can get out of a trial as early as possible, but rather, Father, that whatever brings you glory and honor in the midst of the trial, you might equip us to give to render unto you. I love these people. I thank you for each and every one of them here this morning. I pray that you comfort, strengthen, ennoble them.